Hi, and welcome to the CIPR Engage podcast, doing diversity differently. Diversity is about far more than just ticking boxes. And as the newly published State of PR report shows, there's still much more for the sector to do to better reflect the society we live in and communicate with. In this debate, we highlight the findings from the report, looking at why the PR industry is still struggling to attract diverse talent and what organisations should consider when shaping their diversity and inclusion programmes and policies. Hello, my name is Avril Lee and I'm the Chair of the Diversity Inclusion Network at the CIPR. And today I'm joined by some really great guests to discuss how we can deliver diversity and inclusion in comms and to talk about the role that PR and internal comms practitioners can play in driving change more broadly. Diversity is far more than just ticking boxes and with the CIPR's recent report, Race in PR, and the state of the profession finding that our industry is still 91% white, it's clear change has been slow and there's still much more to do uh, for the sector that we can you know, do better to reflect the society it communicates with. So let me introduce today's guests. Today's guests uh, are firstly Katrina Marshall, uh, who is a lifelong news hound and a lover of uh, a writer of words, and she's carving out a new existence in local government as the comms officer for Solihull, Solihull Metropolitan Borough Council. And she also says she's powered by plantain, curry goat, and her mum's love. So there you go. Uh, we're also joined by Melissa Lawrence, who's the CEO of Taylor Bennett Foundation, a charity that exists to address the need for greater ethnic diversity in the PR and comms industry. And I will add that the TBF has worked for over 10 years to make a difference and has been fundamental to the change that we've actually seen in our industry. And our third guest is Sarah Hawthorne, Managing Director of Infusion Comms. Uh, Sarah's agency is one of the first to be awarded the Blueprint Ally status, and that's a real achievement. Um, it's the first diversity mark solely focused on ethnic diversity, and uh, it really is uh, a good guide to making a difference going forward. Uh, Sarah has uh, appeared on a number of sector panels discussing inclusion and speaking about her own experiences as a deaf individual in the PR world. So that's a really good lineup of people. I think you'll agree. So I'm going to start off with my first question. And I really wanted to really start by mentioning the Race in PR report. Uh, that report drove a lot of discussion about what was going on in our industry. And obviously it was created before Black Lives Matter movement and came out shortly after George Floyd's murder and it really I think grabbed the industry because of that and I was wondering really what your personal thoughts were having read it. Katrina I was going to start with you and what was sort of your personal take it's a it's a hard read I think for anybody from a Bain background um, and I didn't know what what your take take out was after reading it. I mean I walk around in 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 black skin um, as do my ancestors I'm not sure how that report could have read other than as painful and painful because it's historical exhaustion, which is not something that is unique to the comms industry. It's historical exhaustion because the, the message is not new. The information is perhaps better stratified. The data is perhaps better analyzed. It's perhaps better accessed by people who would ordinarily not have been able to access it, but there's nothing new. It started to make me wonder if we need to be dialing even further back with research, with regard to research, are we asking the right questions of the right people to get the right information? Or are we asking the questions that make us feel better about doing another report to get the answers that make us feel better about having done a report, a survey and a report in the first place? Because if what you're getting is a recurrence of the same information, the same formulaic peak of noise in the social conversation just after. And then much like the anatomy of a moral panic, it dies out and ebbs and flows. And we're back here again in 20 years. Are we then grinding down to what is really important, which is what is changing about the questions? The landscape hasn't changed. The access to information hasn't changed. It's gotten better. There's a cohort of young people who are not nearly as naive as some of us were when we started in comms. They're questioning. They are deeply critical. And you need to kind of, you need to show up when you talk to them. None of that has changed the fact that nobody looking like me and Melissa makes it to the C-suite without a bloodied nose and a whole lot of stories to go with it. That was my takeaway. Melissa, what were, what were your thoughts on the report? It was an interesting mix of thoughts. There sort of initially wasn't anything that was truly surprising, but I guess the report was basically no holds barred. It was, you know, the sort of words that leapt out of, you know, the pages were 
quite uncomfortable in places and slightly horrifying in other places as well, actually. But then equally, I I remember I, I was thinking at the time, but people are still happy to work in the industry. I think there was an overwhelming percentage of people that that said that they were they were proud to work in the industry and to be part of the profession but I remember at the time because you know I'm, I'm coming at a slightly different angle as the chief exec of a diversity charity encouraging paying people to come into the industry there was a part of me that thought oh gosh why why am I actually doing this why are we doing this if it's if it's just so terrible but you know I just I I thought it was um a very insightful report and what it made me think despite the things that I have also just said is that all the answers are in there as to how to make things better and I do agree with all of the things that Katrina said you know we we shouldn't be at this point now it's very you know repetitive it's the same thing this conversation was happening probably actually 12 years ago when the foundation was initially set up and the BAME population sat at 6.3%. But I do think we are at a turning point now with all of the things that have happened, the George Floyd murder, the global pandemic, how the the general global conversation around racism in all the different sectors and industries and in PR, but literally all the answers are in that report as to what we can do to make the change. And, and there are some really positive stories, and I think we were talking the other day about there has been positive change, but as the CIPR, we decided to do that report because we could see everybody talking about it and saying change was needed, but nobody was really addressing the realities, and so we didn't pull our punches, you know, on purpose. Yeah. Uh, but I know some of it is highly repetitive, and, and I totally understand that. Sarah, what were your, your thoughts as somebody from a non-BAME background, but obviously from a diverse group as well, and having to face some of the similar challenges? I mean, I echo what's already been said and that none of it was particularly surprising. It was kind of disappointing to read in many ways because it didn't feel like we've come very far. But I agree that it was a a powerful report that came out at a really important time. What struck me about a lot of it was the importance of socioeconomic background in it. So that for me was quite important. And I think we don't often talk about intersectionality enough in this kind of situation. And, and, you know, you can be black and disabled and come from a lower class background. You can be black and enabled and come from an upper class background. It's like we don't talk enough about all those different facets as well. It's, it's very flat and not multidimensional. And I think we need to start having those conversations a little bit more and have it as a more holistic discussion, if you like. Again, there were some interesting things that came out about the desire to get to boardroom level as well. I think that was that was interesting for me when I was reading it is that although people want to stay in PR, the, the overwhelming feeling was they didn't really want to progress to boardroom because it's not a nice place. And my feeling is that's something quite shameful that we should be really thinking about. If someone says that, that we are not creating a nice environment, we should be pretty ashamed by that and taking it seriously. And I am concerned that maybe in another three, four, five years, we get a similar report out and we've still let people down. That that is a real concern, and I would like to be positive about it, and I would like to remain, you know, upbeat and optimistic. But particularly in the in the disability inclusion stuff that I've done, the history doesn't really lead us towards particularly being optimistic about it. I think so. I'm I'm probably a little cautious about the impact that it's going to have in real terms. But I'm I'm glad to see the report there. And I hope it is used in a productive way. Yeah, I think you make a valid comment because actually if the, the boardroom is not right and the lack of role models, etc., actually speaks to the lack of an inclusive culture and actually uh, that people feel that they can't succeed or they don't want to stay within the culture to do that. Um, Sarah, you're an agency boss. I mean, who do you think is responsible for driving that cultural shift or making sure we're not having the same chat in three to four years from now? I've thought about this question a lot, actually. I kind of feel like... We're making it into this hot potato that nobody wants to touch. I feel like we're passing it over and going, well, you take responsibility for it, or you do. We see it as a chore. It's like a thing that we should do or have to do. or you know, And, and that approach in itself is negative. And yeah. why aren't we viewing it as an opportunity the same way we view business growth and people getting excited by going out to new pitch meetings? Why aren't we having discussions around who really wants to get on board and get involved in this because it's an amazing opportunity and when we start talking about whose responsibility it is you give people an out 
as well, I think, because they can, they can opt to step back from that and say, well, actually, we're designating it to HR, we're designating it to a specific um, EDI person or whoever it is, you know, and I think we need to reframe it, that question a little bit and instead say, right, how are we going to do this? Who's on board? This is an amazing thing we're going to do. Look at all the opportunities here, be part of it and try and change the discussion rather than, well, I'll take responsibility or oh, you'll take responsibility or something like that, you know. But you see, I'm a bit more cynical, you see, because I, I think it, people have been talking about this for ages and they put a couple of uh, bullet points on a slide and HR comes up with a bit of a policy, but actually fundamentally it doesn't change anything. Mm. So that's why for me, I think, you know, I've, I've said before, I think that if senior leaders literally aren't doing it, then how do we make, make a difference? And uh, Melissa, what do, what do you think on that one? So for me, I absolutely think it needs to sit with everyone. Um, and I absolutely think it should be driven from the top down. So, you know, we work with lots of different organisations who will talk to us about their diversity efforts and what they're doing. And there isn't this... Um, the same story coming from every organization whether they're a large agency or a, you know an in-house comms team or something along those lines but for me from the organizations that I'm hearing from who say this is absolutely as I said starting at the top being driven down it's the responsibility of senior leaders HR maybe a dedicated DNI person or a DNI committee but the idea is that at all levels people are taking responsibility for DNI in whatever form and you know it's not just unconscious bias training it's it's training it's workshops it's you know blended learning you know people coming in doing stuff digitally but it's it's a combination and and it is about getting everybody on board so non-marginalized um employees so that people don't feel that you know either it's being forced on them or you know it's just not what they want to do and i i think from the feedback that i'm getting about you know companies trying to get everybody involved i'm starting to hear positive things around outcomes that are happening so for me 100 percent driven from the top and across all levels what's what's your take on that and particularly this idea that you know diversity is seen as the hot potato and the sort of you know the thing that nobody really wants to sort out rather than there's a positive uh, yeah potential it was the one moment that i was disappointed that we weren't recording video because we were all nodding so very vociferously um i do very much think that that's an excellent uh, analogy it does feel like people are passing it around and no one wants to deal with it but i feel like it's a reflection of a larger issue where the fear of offense overtakes the fear of being misunderstood so a lot of the meetings i sit on and a lot of the conversations i'm party to it's a lot of speculation about whether or not someone will be offended or how to how to word something so that a particular group won't be offended. Whereas my take on it is be honest, be true, be intentional, say what you're going to say and trust that you're dealing with a set of adults who if you make a misstep in your execution, they won't ignore the fact that there is good intention in in the task itself. And I think that's what's happening with DNI. And I, and I also think that it's not... It's not a recipe. It's not, we're not doing diversity. Diversity and inclusion is becoming part of an overarching ethos. I think it lies with HR and the clue is in the name. The human resource of a company is where the investment in humans from diverse backgrounds start. It should also be a part of a culture. It shouldn't only be about HR ramming brown folks down the necks of unsuspecting line managers and department heads or CEOs. HR should drive and support an existing culture and, and way of doing things that assumes the inclusion and, inc and engagement of black, brown and yellow folks. And if it doesn't, why not? So without overlaboring the point, I'm going to ask this. Does HR have enough power to do exactly what we're saying they need to do? I mean, really? So, yeah, I can see, I know people are listening, but I can see all the guys' heads nodding as well. So I'm going to go back to Melissa first, because I know Melissa deals with HR every day, being Taylor Bennett. I mean, again, it, it varies. And my, my thing about HR, it's, it's the same um, sentiment with DNI professionals. I feel like sometimes there's a lot of bureaucracy within an organization and red tape and trying to do your job with 
one hand tied behind your back. But And this is why, going back to the, the, the first, the question just before, was why I was saying I feel it needs to be driven from the top for HR, a DNI manager, expert, whatever it is, to feel empowered, motivated and supported to carry out the things that they actually want to do. But it, but it is mixed, uh, you know, there isn't this every agency or every organization I talk to, it's the same story. It's, it's mixed, but the ones, as I said, that um, are working best are when lots of people are involved and particularly the top. I can't keep going back to being driven from the top down. And Katrina, what are you finding in the sort of in-house environment? Hmm. <laughs> um, one of the things I think of, of the role of um, internal communicators is perhaps understanding what your limitations are, which is, again, something that we don't talk about often enough. I think that in order to drive an agenda that meets a business imperative, there needs to be a culture shift. And there needs to be a culture shift that starts with individual paradigm shifts. And I think we need to manage our expectations about whether or not Joseph, who is 65 and started in comms when we could still smoke indoors, and it was okay to call women love and bab in meetings, I think we need to understand that we're not going to shift his dominant paradigm and we simply need to make it unacceptable for certain things to happen while leaving the leeway for us to understand that in some ways there's one generation that we have to say, do your best. (laughs) And there's another generation that we have to go, we we have to hold to, to greater account. And then there's the generation that we need to do reverse mentoring with and get them to drive us. But I think one of the things we don't talk about enough is that sometimes you just have to click tick that corporate social responsibility box and accept that, I mean, 65 years ago, my former in-laws marriage was illegal. That's within our lifetime. 55 years ago, uh, small black children were used as fodder for circuses in, 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 I believe it was Belgium. That was within living memory. So if you want to talk about organizational change for somewhere somewhere that people go between nine and five, between Monday and Friday, and then they have lives outside of that. If they're not living it and breathing it as a personal uh, mantra, manage your expectations about how much you're going to change someone's mindset within that time frame. Of course, go for the stars, but manage your expectations in terms of what you will be able to accomplish. Things like paradigm shifts take generations. Yeah, I mean, we're talking, and also because we're talking about one far wide-reaching yeah industry but one industry in a huge societal challenge that we're, we're now facing and bring it back to the industry part of it I mean Sarah you know, we talk about clients and what role do clients have I actually think some of the clients are ahead of us in the DNI space and are actually starting to ask for diverse teams on pitch tenders but others we know maybe aren't so I don't know what, what you're hearing from clients in this perspective or what you think our role is with clients around DNI. I think it's a good point I think we are seeing a shift in what is being asked for Um, and the agencies that they are looking for. And sometimes you will see that in terms of a sustainability clause. Sometimes you'll see that in a DNI clause. Um, I know certainly um, recently the the blueprint I stated has been an important point for us when we've been going to um, pitch for new clients and and their discussions with us about coming on board. That has been something that's been brought up. So I think that, can, that trend is definitely going to continue and we have a responsibility to make sure that we can, we can respond to that positively and say, right, here, very clearly, here are the five things we are doing, but also we expect of you and what we expect of you. And in some industries, that's going to be harder than others. Um, and the more consumer focused ones, I think it might be a little bit easier. My industries have always been very male dominated, very white male dominated. It was construction, built environment, energy. But that doesn't mean they're incapable of change. And there's a lot of good things happening, but progress is maybe a little bit slower. And that's where I see our responsibility to come in and educate them along with us and tell them what we're doing and why we're doing it and take them on that journey with us and just say, right, this is the status we have. This is what it means. It means that we have no to- zero tolerance. We are, this is how we approach jobs. This is how we approach clients we expect for you to reciprocate that behavior as well. So if we are working with them at a very strategic level, looking at all parts of their organization, we will raise their recruitment practices. If they are a, a startup company 
and they are going through a period of growth, we will talk to them about how they're going to structure that growth and actually have you considered how you're going to recruit, where you're going to recruit, how you're going to make your team diverse as it grows. And those are questions that we have to ask. So we, I think we do have a responsibility um, to be upfront about it. And in certain cases, we also need to take those businesses along with us and sometimes we may drag them a little bit and sometimes they may come willingly. But that shift is happening and it's going to continue happening. And I think it's almost tied in to wider shifts around sustainability as well that whole that whole model of what we are expecting and what we want to see in the world that we want to live in is changing and we are starting to see that now coming through and and what businesses are asking of us as agencies as well it's also really interesting to hear that which what we're hearing from lots of people with BAME backgrounds and people with diversity we want to have an honest conversation and that's what you're having and having it up front because also in the report we showed people had very bad experiences led from the client side but yeah. you know if you actually have that conversation up front this is the sort of stuff that you, you could address much sooner and far more directly and not have people having absolutely appalling um experiences i was going to move on really to sort of uh, melissa i was going to start with you on this one how how do we identify and challenge our own unconscious bias i know you know training isn't the panacea here and, and i think if people are aware of what's going on um, in terms of their workplace and unacceptable language or behaviours, you know, what what should we do? What do you think is best practice around around that? I mean, ultimately, I think in terms of identifying our own unconscious bias or identifying unconscious bias, it's it starts with leaning into the uncomfortable. You know, we touched on that a little bit earlier on. I think, you know, we all have biases, whether they're unconscious or conscious about the people around us because of the way we're raised or educated or struggles that we may have faced. And that informs how we then view and interact and treat people at work. And it's really challenging, you know, to sort of think about how you mitigate that because you need a particular level of self-awareness that not everybody has. But um, I don't know, I think if we can start by acknowledging and, you know, understanding why we react or think in a certain way or have a particular judgment, then we can take steps to sort of challenge ourselves in a healthy way. But that, for me, is the first step to sort of lean into that uncomfortableness and and just get comfortable with it get comfortable with the uncomfortable yeah I know it's a bit of a a saying that's been that's said a lot but but it genuinely is you know even when I have conversations I slightly feel uncomfortable but then I quickly get over that to think well actually I've got to get comfortable otherwise we're not going to progress this conversation and our thought process and our actions so uh, even if you know a company says to me so you know what do you think of our our organization you know these are our efforts what we're doing and you sort of think well for me sometimes it's why are you asking me that it's really uncomfortable but as I said it's just moving on with that very quickly. Katrina what do you think that sort of ties into what you were talking about earlier as well where are you what's your take on this? The thing with unconscious bias for me, I find it a really difficult question, actually, because it's rather easy to think that because a particular minority group is having a moment, so black people are having a moment right now, and it's it's easy to think that you don't have work to do yourself as a marginalized group. That isn't true. It doesn't take away from the, the fact that those whose bias affects a majority of people um, are the ones empower but it doesn't mean that I don't have work to do myself if you want to use a pretty ridiculous example my unconscious bias about Finnish or Norwegian people isn't part of a systematic attempt to disenfranchise Norwegian people Um, it doesn't mean I don't have to work on it but at the moment the unconscious bias that keeps black and brown women out of the c-suite in comms is a little bit more mission critical because it affects a larger group of people On the other hand, I think unconscious bias training needs to be taken with a pinch of salt and again, managed expectations because what you're asking people to do is to look at themselves in the mirror naked in in, in the sun and perhaps not like what they see. And you're not just expecting them to adjust their bias at work because as much as we have one persona for work and the other one for whom we are fundamentally the same person. So if you have someone with ingrained biases against uh, Chicano people from Puerto Rico, or, or from Native American people, you're not going to get them to, to fix that between nine and five and then have them go back to being bigoted after five. So I think it's a case of manage your expectations, 
push for the change, but understand that what you're asking for people who are truly committed to the process is not just for people to flip a switch. It's for them to become, to sit with who they are and the parts of themselves that perhaps they're not proud of. And that's not a linear set of progress. Yeah, what I'm hearing from lots of, you know, what we're talking about here is that this is just pain me to say it, but it's going to take time. I feel like, you know, we've been on, God knows, more than 10 years, and this is why we're telling Bennett, you know, we've, we've been pushing at this door for a long time. Now people are finally talking about it and saying it's of value, which they weren't before, but now it's how do we make action happen? And like you say, fun, it's, it's not just a, changing a business, you know, a workplace, it's actually fundamental change for a lot of people. And I think that's, that's really tough. Sarah, what do you think? On that particularly, I think that there's a, a point at which we are sometimes in a bit of a rush to fix a problem. And with, with, with diversity and inclusion, we need a period of time to sit with it and digest it and reflect upon it personally. We need to create a space where it is okay to do that. Because like Katrina said, like you are holding a mirror up to people. And we often view racism as this really overt thing and we re- we think we recognize it we think we recognize it because it's it's calling people certain words or, or whatever it is but it isn't it isn't there's a lot of covert racism that happens that we don't quite identify and there's a lot of that going about and actually we need to be able to have a discussion where we can point that out but allow that person time to just sit and go right this was said to me what does that mean and have those who's challenged and then see what they do rather than rush to fix something or demand that they do something immediately as an industry, we, we fix, don't we? we? We fix reputations, we fix problems, we, we manage things. And that is our default approach. And I think it's a struggle for us to shift our mindset towards something that's just a bit more um, thoughtful and a little bit more considered before we take an action sometimes. And I, th- I feel like that's what we need to do with unconscious bias is create a space where we can have a discussion, allow people the time to sit with it and then come back to it and find a way to 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 deal with it then when have people have time to reflect at all. Uh, Katrina, you were going to say something. Yeah, just to pick up on something that Sarah said in terms of giving people the time to make that paradigm shift. I think one of the useful things that agencies can do in terms of driving their clients' agendas is help their clients feel empowered to shift not just regional, but national conversations. I've long believed that the moral agenda for driving diversity up clients' agendas is a fool's errand. I believe the business case should be made for it first. If the data isn't there, commission it. If your networks don't reveal who can provide the perspective of a minority group, then you need to broaden your network. Um, Oddly enough, I believe that when the business case is made, it is then easier to promote the moral case because you can then appeal to the the company's um, desire to tick the CSR box and increasingly not get caught in this unfortunate tsunami of of cancel culture. Nobody wants that. I mean, there is no cure-all, but there is a role for agencies to play in in molding the industry's national initiative, um, notwithstanding the fact that you will always find a few people who are disingenuous and they're looking for clicks and likes. But in the aftermath of the Black Lives Matter resurgence, quite a few companies led national conversations and I think started the, the, the trend towards molding a different kind of culture where it was more acceptable to say, we didn't do so good. We're listening and learning. We'll get back to you when we've had the chance to sit with this. If, if clients feel empowered through your policies and pitches as an agency, to start a conversation like that, or even continue one or add their voices to one. And then further on down the line, agency clients can be key in the discussion, but their their foot soldiers have to then feel autonomous and empowered to push this agenda from, from pitch all the way through. I think that's a key part that agencies can play when it comes to trying to shift their their clients' agendas. More power to you if you've got, you know, some of Sarah's clients who are like, pick me, pick me, we're good to go. But if you have to to drag them along a little bit, that's a great way to do it in, in my view. It's, it's, an, it's an interesting one because I hear you and I, I, I can see the need for research to show that the disconnect between the audience and the company or the, you know, the comms agency in the mix and we're not answering. But I, I'm also quite now, I've just sort of 
so having spent years talking about it, it's like I don't want to do business cases anymore in terms of hiring comms because like I said it before, I said it again, I don't need to write a business case to hire a white guy. So why am I writing a business case to hire a black man? You know, overall, I was just we discussed this the other day as well that just there were so many reports about how you know diversity across all the protected characteristics are good for business, particularly gender and ethnicity. And I agree with you. Why Why should we be writing a, a business case to hire a disabled person or a, a, a woman or whatever it is? It should 100% be about trying to find the right person for the job. I suppose I still have a, just, just a teeny bit of faith that if you can't, it, it wasn't it my Angelou said that you can't legislate love, but you can legislate fairness. I'm only asking that our industry legislates a bit of fairness. And you can't do that if you don't show people that they're losing money by cutting people out. This throws into very sharp relief the issue of whose job it is um, to drive the agenda. And why is it always our job to keep proving? And where, is the, where does the burden of proof lie? Um, there is a, a now deceased Trinidadian uh, playwright who said, we have not crossed unless we have all crossed and some we have to carry. The question is, Whose job is it to carry? I don't. I don't mind carrying a few cistern because they've fallen along the wayside. But why is the burden of proof constantly on the minority group to prove that they have a right to be there? One of the reasons why I respect one of my former directors so much is because I know for a fact that my praise and my reprimand had absolutely everything to do with my work and nothing to do with the fact that I was black and black. I would love in some far off utopia to have someone be fired, not because the size of their curls offends the white manager, not because their sick days are thoughts to not to be genuine. All of these are anecdotal, you know, evidence that we know people um, have to face. I would like them to be fired because they're crap and only because they're crap. Not for any other reason that, that keeps people awake at night, the ones who go through the recruitment process and then wonder, is it, is it me? That'll be the highest summit of diversity and inclusion to be sacked because you're just crap. Exactly. And to that point, why don't you start from, we've all got a right to be there, now make the business case for why I can't be part of this team. Ah. So that's a better way as well. Um, and then just thinking now, that big one, because we, you know, recruitment, recruitment, retention, progression, uh, rewarding influence these are the things that actually make the difference in in the long run in terms of keeping people from diverse backgrounds in businesses and I'm going to start with Melissa because obviously Melissa you've got the the ear of a lot of your alumni and young people who are out there doing it at the moment and then I thought I'd ask Sarah what her take is from a, a, a disability background and really how that's play, how that plays out in your experience so Melissa what, what are your thoughts on that? We have got lots of people that have been through the foundation and they are in, you know, good positions now. And I, I think I was saying to you before, I really want to shout about them a little bit more and, and share, you know, where they are now and what they're doing. But I, I think, you know, for people to, for the industry to retain them rather and to progress them, they, businesses really need to look at creating environments where um, individuals can can thrive and feel valued and motivated and and ultimately invested in that's what will keep them and going back to something Katrina said you know that's all about the quality of their work if people are doing good work reward them and um, acknowledge them and celebrate that I, I was rereading the race NPR report at the weekend and I remember reading something about an individual who had consistently done good work, but they were not able to be put in front of the client because the client just wasn't kind of accepting that. And I remember the bosses said, we've looked over your work. It's absolutely fine. But basically every time we have a meeting with the client, it's got to be us in the room. And they said they left because their employer did not have their back. Sarah, what, what are your thoughts on that? One of the things that comes up quite a lot is I think some employers are naive as to the impact sometimes. So, for example, I, I've i been dealing with a lot of fatigue issues. I had COVID at the start of um, April. I was out and I've, I've had fatigue right through since I recovered. And that gave me a real insight into some of, of my friends who have MECMCFS and their kind of day-to-day life. And it was quite eye-opening. Sometimes when we hire, particularly on disability, we put 
the same pressures sometimes, which I don't think are right anyway because I find them quite old school, on achieving and and what that should look like. And actually, if that because it's so rigid, so we haven't had a culture of flexibility, for example. So say someone has um, an energy-limiting illness, um, and actually what they can do is work from home three days a week. They can work from the bed on the laptop, and actually the quality of the work is perfect, and they can do it, and absolutely fine we still don't value that in PR and we still think they have to be in the office from nine to half five. And because of that, they have more sick days. And then we say, well, I hired a disabled person. They were off all the time. And you end up in this cycle that just is not productive. So I think we have to revisit our practices. And COVID has shown that we can do that. And now I think it's going to be very hard for any employer to take flexible working away from people. Touching on the intersectionality of it, we need to have more of an awareness of that as well. Because, you know, when I first came into PR, I don't have a degree. I come from a council house background and I worked in agencies in the southeast and it was so posh, so posh. And I just felt out of place, you know, I just didn't fit in really with them. I, I couldn't relate to any of their kind of like grown up experiences so we have a really big problem with that as well in terms of getting people to stay and if you have this culture where it's very middle class and you can afford to go out and do all these expensive team things or whatever it is we have to remember that not everyone in our team is going to be able to do that and people might not want to go for beer o'clock and we have to rethink our approach to the people that we have in our organisations. I've, I've come across those people. We are a posh industry. It is uncomfortable to be in that environment sometimes when you you don't know the etiquette, I think. And that has a big impact on people staying in our industry. I worry that there is a little bit of white saviourism going on and that we hire juniors and that I've seen quite a few larger organisations, they hire junior people and it's almost the token, yep, we, we brought in the black and Asian and mixed race people and then, but they never seem to go anywhere. And I don't know if there's a little bit of that in it. And I know that sounds like a terrible thing to say. What I've seen recently has just really disappointed me. I, I think it's contributing as to why we're not seeing senior members, um, you know, black and Asian and mixed race. You raised a lot, I mean, a lot there. And I, and exactly that, there's no, it's not a headcount job about, you know, let's just go out and hire a slew of juniors and tick the box and look, our numbers look so much better now because, you know, that's not real diversity and inclusion and that is not going to change our industry. And I, and I also hear you on, you know, it's the free school mids, meals kid, you know, that white middle-class monoculture that you come into and find yourself having to navigate and the, the use of, you know, when you're recruiting language, people like us, people who can hit the ground running. And it would be quite ironic, actually, if COVID is the game changer in terms of, you know, flexible working and thinking about people in a different way, you know. Uh, and I think we should start stop using some of those, you know, those set terms, which basically say we just want more of the same. And Katrina, I can see you gesticulating wildly. Uh, so mm. uh, what, what are your thoughts on it? Recruitment has got a lot to answer for. Most aspects of the recruitment rat race are designed to keep people out rather than in. I felt a degree of kinship there because Sarah and I could not be more different in background or, or, or all the rest of it, but our common goal is the same. Stop hiring the same people and have greater respect for people as an entire entity and not for the box ticking. Bosses tend to hire people like them and it's just a cycle that just keeps going round and round. And in fact, I think it was the one before last, the State of the Profession survey found you that actually we had an incredibly high level of people that came from fee paying schools. And I thought, oh, that must be the old school. But then when we looked at the data, yes, it was the, the, uh, the elders of the industry, but it was also the incomers, the youngest level. So these people were just hiring in their own image. And if we keep doing that, we won't break this monoculture down. We won't reflect the, the society we're trying to reach and the audiences we're claiming that we have expertise in if we just keep repeating the same, quite frankly, sins uh, of recruitment. So it's not going to change. Um, one thing I was going to ask about, which sort of relates to this, is a lot of people are asking, you know, what should they be doing? And Katrina, I'm going to start with you on this one. You know, and again, I've said this before. Yeah, I'm not sure it's, it's been people's jobs to answer this question, but I think you, got, you, know, you guys... I've had the most experience of, of seeing it, but what should somebody who's non-BAME be doing to help drive this change? I love this question um, because it speaks to a desire to create seed change. Um, I've spoken already about the fact that you're not going to shift certain people's dominant paradigms overnight. 
and you can create or or as you know has been said earlier you can legislate fairness even though if you, even if you can't legislate love or kindness but i think active listening is so key because it goes hand in hand with creating those structures yes you can make it unacceptable to say certain things and make certain references but you also have to leave the door for communication open for misunderstanding um and for clarification that's the only way a culture changes i was reading um a, a bit of research that said that black and minority ethnic police officers were either transferred or fired at a higher rate than their white counterparts, not because they were worse at their jobs, but because there was a fear of offending by having that kind of down the pub conversation, which could clarify so many things. But because those conversations were not had as the kind of gray area glue that kept the communication wheel together, a lot of them went through formal disciplinary processes where a simple conversation might have, might have saved things be aware of what you can't accomplish. There are some scenarios, and this is just an example, in which a 35-year-old second-generation Nigerian comms professional is simply not going to bring her whole self to an organization. Because no matter how inclusive and understanding the place is, there's no one with whom, with whom she shares a cultural background or a certain set of references in her language or in her dialect. And that extends to her contribution to pitches, to campaigns, the water cooler chit chat, how she takes her tea. Does she even drink tea? Sometimes the kindest thing you can do, instead of being all up in her business about what she's doing this weekend, leave her be to retreat to the spaces and places that she can be her authentic self, to recharge and return the next day. If you're genuinely interested in something unique to her culture, ask her about it, but don't pepper her with questions like she's a monkey in a zoo or attached to some sort of lie detector test. Sometimes the best thing you can do is acknowledge that you don't know and that there's a history of reasons why there's a deep degree of skepticism from minority ethnic staff members, not just of management, but of structures of government, structures of governance, structures of immigration. All the, there's a deep degree of skepticism, and justifiably so. Sometimes the best thing you can do is acknowledge that they're going to take their time to trust you. And if they choose not to, it ain't personal. There's a lot there. Melissa, what's your take on it? What, a lot of people who will be listening to this, hopefully, are non-BAME, because it's not just BAME people's jobs and people from diverse backgrounds' jobs who sort this out. That's a tricky one for me. No, I, I get that. I mean, for me, I think even, to, which does feedback to Katrina, is just have the conversation, just talk to people, be open. I think the, the fear factor in some of this is, is holding us back. And I think just acknowledging that we haven't all got the same background, that we might you know, do different things at the weekend, that you can't understand an individual, you know, because we're not all cookie cutters. It's half of the challenge, but at least feeling now that maybe, you know, it's worth asking somebody about what they think about things or, you know, what their background is you know, in a positive way, you know? I mean, definitely all of the things that, that you just said and just being open and whether it's listening, well, listening in particular, it, it is a key thing. I think it's the nature of this challenge. It's, it's, it's going to be constantly evolving as, as diversity evolves. And I think there, are, there aren't simple answers. And we said that at the beginning, didn't we? You know, it's not a tick box. It's not something that's just going to be a hot topic for now. And it, um, and it really is multifaceted everything. And there are lots of forums and panels and discussions around, you know, best practice and just the right things to do. But actually, I think a lot of this is down... It, it starts with data, understanding your organisation, the people you work with, and then coming up with your idea about or your suggestions, your initiatives, your programmes or whatever it is about what to do. But but this the whole thing is very multifaceted. So Melissa, going on to what you've just said, I mean, how do we avoid sort of tokenism? How do we remain authentic? And sort of, yeah, we've just talked about how challenging it, it is when we're looking at sort of recruitment, retention, the wider change, how do we, how do we stay true to ourselves and make it an honest? So for me, I, I think building on what I just said is taking time to work out the right thing for your business, for your organisation. You know, not everyone will have the resources like, you know, people-wise or money-wise to make changes and do certain things. And I, I feel that, as I said, there needs to be layers in everything that people do. So we talked earlier on about knee-jerk reactions to some of the things that have recently happened. And I have had lots of requests to just do talks about organisation, what we do and what more could be done and um, requests to do things like unconscious bias training. And that's the only thing. And equally, 
people saying, oh, we want to support you. We want to, you know, for example, host the masterclass. But to avoid that sort of tokenism and that and to be authentic, I think more thought just needs to go into everything. Um, One of the things that I know I'm particularly insistent on doing is weeding out organizations that are not authentic and are being tokenistic with the foundation because it does occasionally happen and so I'm looking for more genuine partnerships and people that support us in a holistic way across all of the things that we do. And then I'm thinking about you know a young person today like I say we have some really positive feedback in the report as well about what a great industry it is and we've had you know there are really good positive stories as well of what's going on but I wondered if you guys were talking to a young person today who came from a more diverse background who said to you I'm thinking about going into PR what would be your advice to them I'm going to start with uh, Sarah on this one I can see Katrina's already like whoa but uh, let's start with Sarah now, what, what are you going to say to that young person in terms of where they're heading and what their choices are I think finding or building a network that is right for you is important And that may be the mentors that you source, the groups that you join, the online communities that you take part in. There's a lot of them about and some of them are really amazing. And I think if you are going to start a career in PR, that network is important. And and the people that have your back, find the people that have your back. So there are some amazing people doing wonderful things across diversity and inclusion in this industry at the moment and I think as we develop we're going to see that more and more so if you're coming into this industry seek those people out because those you know from a very you know early stage that those people are going to have your back and those people are going to be there as you progress through and give you point you in the direction you need to be pointed in for training or support or for mentorship or reverse mentorship whatever it is that is there put some time into into creating that network and and it you know, at the start of your career, um, and hopefully that will give you a much um, better experience that will lead you to stay in PR and actually allow you to be um, to maximise your your skills and your ability and to progress to where you want to progress to in this industry. Katrina, what would you what would you say to a young person thinking about PR as a career? I would pick up on what Sarah said, and I agree with it to a point. Networking is incredibly important, and I'm eternally grateful for the network that has helped me to meet the women on this call and a few others that have been part of what's really been an interesting comms journey. But I will pause by saying networking for the sake of networking needs a bit of tweaking. There's obvious people who are leaders in our industry who by now are accustomed to being approached. And you get to the point where you can almost hear the spiel coming from the recent Unilever who's just kind of come off a gap year and is looking for work experience. The thing I learned is to network with people with whom you have a genuine connection and to network with people when you want absolutely nothing from them. If you keep going to people, you create a power imbalance where you are always the intern seeking the guidance from the mentor, where it is well documented again that through reverse mentoring and just active listening, leaning in, all all of those buzzwords, there's a lot to be learned in the opposite direction. So my advice would be, if you must get into comms, start from the position of creating networks from a human perspective. I regularly reach out to people in comms and journalism who have never put a penny in my pocket or a morsel of food in my mouth, but one day there will be a chance that I can capitalize on, and that's a horrible word, but I can't find another one right now. There'll be one day that I can capitalize on the relationship built up over that period of time. I think that the transactional aspect of networking makes it sour And people can start to tell from a mile off when your idea of networking is how soon can you put me in touch with someone who can give me paid work experience, which is entirely different from a passing article that I saw in a magazine. And I pick up the phone and I say, Melissa, have you seen this photograph? It's fantastic. You know, let it happen. Don't lose your humanity in your drive to find a job, which can be hard because when you're looking for work, that's all you can see. So I don't want to sound like a cynic. There's great joy to be found in comms and great work is being done. Seek out the people who are doing the great work. Listen more than you talk. 
be human first and someone looking for a job second, and eventually the work will come. Wise words there. Melissa, you're talking to these young people every day of the week. What do you yeah, think? I, mean, I definitely echo a lot of um, what both Sarah and Katrina have said for me when I'm speaking to young people I just talk about you know how exciting the industry is that they can build a you know an actually good solid professional career which is equivalent to you know being an engineer or a doctor or a lawyer you know in in their own field you know it it, you can have a professional um career within communications um and there are so many different sectors and disciplines that you can go into so it's just about me sharing all of that with young people and saying to get there one of the big things that that both Sarah and Katrina have said is definitely networking. 100% agree with Katrina about finding the right networks for you, though. And then also finding, you know, various opportunities to build their knowledge and insight and experiences before they make the real jump into the industry, you know, find out if it's right for them, because actually, you know, it isn't for everyone. My other piece of advice would be to pay attention to the Melissa's of the world who have been consistently ticking away. Pay attention to the people who are not just trending because the hashtag is on the right hand column of Twitter. Pay attention to the people who are consistent in their, in both their intention and their execution. Don't be dazzled by the people who promise you things that, doesn't, that don't seem as if they can be accomplished reasonably. Pay attention to people like Sarah who will push back on a, a male, pale, and stale list of recruits and ask for people whose name perhaps is Kwame and not just Charles. Pay attention to the people who quietly do the work behind the scenes, whether there is an uptick in the national conversation or not, because fundamentally, those are the people who are changing the industry from the inside out, and they're changing it in ways that will last. Without stealing your thunder, Avril, I really think that's the best place to end this conversation. (laughs) It is, and I I think we've had a fantastic conversation. I just want to thank you all for being honest, open, putting your true self. I mean, I think these conversations are always best if you can just say it as it is, and I think you guys have really given some fantastic insights and some guidance today. And I think anybody listening to this has got, will have learned a lot from listening to you. So I just want to thank you for your time and your honesty. Thanks for listening to our CIPR Engage podcast, Doing Diversity Differently. We'd love to hear your thoughts on what you've heard and you can hashtag us with Engage CIPR or Engage Podcast to let us know what you think. We'll be back with another episode of CIPR Engage next quarter. And if there's a topic you'd be keen to hear about, email us, training at cipr.co.uk. That's training at cipr.co.uk.